the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn and, of course, my co-host, the famed Alternative Nation personality, Alan Niven. Is that is that your new title, Sir Alan? Because I, I see you on the web all the time these days. Oh, good God. I know. It's terrible. But, you know, there are all these sites and they all need something to talk about. And you and I talk every week and between us, we can probably put six words into a, a coherent sentence. I'm very flattered by the fact that uh, folks are listening and folks find us, uh, and I'm going to say endearing enough to want to uh, r- report or prepare a reportage to the others about what we're doing. But uh, let's get on to uh, today's show. It is a uh, threesome. We have a th- uh, uh, Three, three for three, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Mick Jones of Foreigner gave me a call, and I said, oh, look at that. Mick Jones is calling. And, of course, they are coming to Toronto with the Jukebox Hero Musical, and he wanted to talk about that. And, of course, I got in a couple other questions. For example, what was his reaction to Lou Graham announcing his retirement in Schenectady in December? And then on the other side of that, we have Mike Tramp, Le Le Mike Tramp. So let us um, should we should we discuss a little foreigner? Or should we get right in? No, you know what? You're a Mick Jones fan, right? Going back to the day. Oh yeah, I'm definitely a foreigner fan. Um, they weren't rewriting social commentary, um, but I've always been partial to things like Dirty White Boy. But more than being partial, I want to know what love is. Is one of those songs that I wish I'd written. I think it is a magnificent statement, a genius piece of writing, and I think that's the very best of Mick Jones in one song. And and we've mentioned that before, and, and of course, uh, coming out in uh, March, they have a new live album that includes a re-recording of I Want to Know What Love Is, and you're thinking, oh, really, do we really know that? Yes, we do, because the money raised on this album, the net profits, are going to head over to the Shriners Hospital. They are actually putting out a product not to line their pockets, but to make the world a little bit, a little bit of a better place. Um, so I'm going to ask you about that. Do artists like Foreigner and Guns N' Roses and Kiss and Bon Jovi do they have a, a, a social responsibility to to give back to communities or a business is a business is a business and I can do what I want with my money? Um, where do you fall on? Is, is there a social conscience or obligation or is Foreigner just being one of those exec- exceptionally uh, humanitarian groups? Well, I can only give you my personal perspective on it. And... As far as I'm concerned, rock and roll is about the spirit as much as anything. And I think it's incredibly appropriate for bands who are in the position that they can do it, that they encourage people to contribute to those who can use help. I mean, if that's putting out bins at the gig so that people can go and get a couple of cans and throw them in the bins and they can go and the local um, food relief organizations. Um, All these things, I think, are just 
of the spirit and of a really cool social attitude. And I love it when bands do that. I think it's really cool, and I think it should be more commonplace rather than an event. Yeah, I agree. And uh, let, let me get over to Mick Jones. This is very much a hit-and-run uh, interview. It was it was sort of an impromptu conversation that led us to talk about the uh, jukebox musical, uh, well, the jukebox hero musical, and, of course, their uh, Lou Graham and stuff. So... Without further ado, I will give you Mick Jones, and then stick around, folks. We have Mike Tramp, formerly of White Lion, and the great Jim Valance, singer, songwriter, drummer for Prism, but also writer of Summer of 69, having worked with Ozzy Osbourne, Aerosmith, uh, Brian Adams, and, uh, well, Kiss, of course, because, you know, your career is not complete unless you've done something with Kiss. Uh, but here is Le Seul et Unique, the one and only Mick Jones. We are speaking with Mick Jones of Foreigner. Good day, Mick. Hey, how are you doing? Good, good. Uh, I got to see your, your show at Mohegan Sun in December, the Double Vision. Absolutely spectacular. But you are coming north to uh, my wonderful country of Canada. First up mm-hmm. is, of course, the Jukebox Hero Musical that is premiering in Toronto. And then, of course, the Cold as Ice Tour. But uh, talk to me about this uh, musical. What are fans going to see? I- I'm assuming the band is not in it, but the music of the band is, it, is in it. What mm-hmm. is Jukebox Hero the musical? Well, it's, um, it's a, a kind of a story based around two brothers and um, the way uh, their paths sort of split at one point. And... Um, some resentment built up within uh, their relationship. And um, there's a few uh, other kind of um, uh, not marital problems, but, um, you know, domestic problems that that take place a bit. Uh, It also reflects the socioeconomic, ooh, that's a long one, (laughs) um, atmosphere in, uh, in, in those towns, basically mining towns, the problems, you know, with closures and all that kind of stuff. So it's a little bit, um, it gets a little bit uh, involved with that. But overall, it's just, um, as I say, you know, based around these two brothers and um, their way to to getting back together and uh, repairing their relationship. And um, a few hurdles here and there. And, um, you know, generally, uh, these songs really have, have been, um, revisited a bit to, you know, to fit in with the script and the, and the, um, and the plot and, um, you know, and then a few surprises. And, uh, I think it's going to be, um, it's, it's already, I think we've sold out, uh, all the shows here in Toronto uh, and um, we'll be, um, as you say, we'll be, uh, the band won't appear in the, in, in the musical. We, we have a, the cold as ice tour, as you mentioned um, coming up and we're very happy to finally be able to do a, you know, a bit of an extended um, visit up there. Yeah, I can't wait. Now, of course, Jukebox Hero is a great way to keep the music alive. The band, of course, has been keeping it alive. But what are sort of the plans for Jukebox Hero moving forward? Is this something that we do in 2019 and it's fun and then we move on from it? 
or do you hope it's something that will have an extended run and go on for the next, you know, five, ten years? What what is sort of your your vision for the continuation of Jukebox Hero? Well, um, I'm very <clears throat> I'm very optimistic uh, based on what I've seen so far and the reaction um, from the audience that we uh, when we played in uh, Calgary and. Um, it's just uh, it seems you know a very good feeling amongst the uh, you know the the actors the singers um and it's uh, it's been well directed and the script is um is is, is great and uh, it's funny uh, there's some more uh, serious scenes in it but um i think it's it's captured the, the songs somehow the way they've been um placed uh, and and the way they they seem to enhance the story, and um, it it almost seems like uh, it could have been, you know, the story sort of could have been written about um, uh, about certain um, you know periods of our career, especially with the two brothers being a musician. Oh, absolutely. Now. I know that this is more of a hit-and-run sort of 10-minute spot, but uh, I did mention mm-hmm. the Double Vision shows. You did some of those with, with Lou and, of course, Kelly. Are there mm-hmm. plans for more of those coming up this summer or, or this year? Because that is an extraordinary performance. It, it really was magical. Thank you. Yeah, I, I had a ball, I must say, in those last shows there. The um, uh, Mohegan Sun. That was great. Something happened... Something happened to me. I don't know. I just maybe flash back to when I was about 28, 30. And uh, I started, um, you know, moving like I used to move. And hopefully that'll carry on through through the, uh, you know, the next period of time. But I, I had sort of a, a an experience, you know, uh, and I really felt um, I, I sort of jumped back in time a bit. And... Um, and then had a real, real ball there. So I was very happy with that one. Yeah, I was very happy with it too. And uh, I'll just ask you and, this. And we will, and we will be doing some more of those later in the year. Oh, good. And um, yeah, so uh, there'll be a, a chance for uh, more people to see it. And uh, that'll be great, both for us and for the original members. It will be. And because and, I have to say, I was at this Lou Graham show in Schenectady in, in December, and he, on stage he said, I'm retiring, and I was like, "Oh, well, that's not good." I just saw a great show in Mohegan Sun. Don't retire. <laughs> so, so I'm glad. <laughs> good to hear that he'll be. I know. But did that announcement sort of catch you by surprise as well? It did a bit, but um, you know, uh, Lou has, um, you know, he's. Um, I think he needs. He wants to devote more time to his family. He's got a big family, and. Um, you know, I I can't say that that's you know a definite. I still have a feeling that he's going to be doing uh, maybe doing more shows. Well, definitely doing more shows like the one you saw, and um, and who knows? You know, who it's knows? Funny, the music business never seems to be a real cut and dried uh, finish to a career. There's usually uh, quite a few years that carry on. Well, farewell concerts. Well, listen, I mean, uh, the Who 
did their first farewell shows in 81 or 82 and it's 2019 and they're still going. Right. So uh, let me ask you though, on, on the foreigner front, joking aside, do you see the band going on because you've got the musical that's going to carry on the music, but you know, Mm -hmm. Jeff and Kelly and Bruce and the rest of them, they are a bit younger than you. They are, they've still got a good 15, 20 years. Would you mm-hmm. be opposed to them going on, uh, at least carrying on the spirit of Foreigner past 2020, 2025? Or is it when Mick's done, Foreigner's done? Well, um, that's a, um, a good question, but we we haven't really um, made any definite plans or a, or a master plan or whatever you call it. Um, I, as long as I feel good and um, I can, you know, play like uh, I need to, um, you know, we, we we have a great band with the new guys, and uh, and I certainly think they would be capable of carrying it on, and um, you know, uh, who knows? <laughs> well, it, at this it, point, at this point, I'm living in you know in the present and. Um, not thinking about that too much, but, uh, you know, in, in time, obviously, it'll be something we have to uh, talk about. To address. And I know we're down to our last two minutes here, so I'll ask you just two two rapid questions. You have done yeah. a lot of work with the Shriners Hospital. We, we recut I Want to Know What Love Is. There's an album that's going to feature mm-hmm. that's coming out soon. Uh, when you go to concerts, there are there's special CDs that, that the money goes to them. Just talk to me quickly yeah. about that relationship and why you think it's important, because it is, to sort of give back mm-hmm. to the community and you've chosen the Shriners Hospital as the place yeah. that you're giving back. Yeah. Yeah, we developed a, um, a, a good relationship right from the get-go. Um, we wanted to do something uh, meaningful. We wanted to do something that uh, would give back, you know, um, to our success. and. Um, you know, uh, that seemed to be really, you know, we 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 finally decided that that, that was really going to work very well. And um, it has worked, uh, and we've we've been able to donate quite a large sum of money to them over the over the past years. And um, we went down, uh, Lou and I, uh, sorry, Kelly and I went down and cut that um, video down there with the with the kids. And we got to spend the day, and uh, it was just such an. It was very emotional, and um, and it gave us a really good feeling, and uh, hopefully that'll contribute more to the to the cause. And uh, they're certainly very grateful for what we what we're doing, and um, and it, and it was fun meeting with the kids, and uh, some we'd seen on TV. There, some of them are stars <laughs> in their own right. That's right. And, and um, yeah. And I'll just say, uh, like we say in, in Montreal, c'est, c'est magnifique. You, you, absolutely magnifique what you're doing. It's ma- uh, magnificent. And, and I'll finish with this because I see our time is up. Uh, Live at the Rainbow 78 is coming out in March. Uh, I have mm-hmm. to tell you, I am giddy with excitement at, at, the, at the chance of actually owning a non-bootleg copy of that. It, it is going to be spectacular. Yeah. Just, just If you can, just sort of reminisce about that show or just that era. Foreigner in 1978, it was a master class in performance 
songwriting, skill, charisma. I mean, you, Mick, Dennis Elliott. I mean, it's just, it, it, it was it, right? C'est pas mal, hein? No, c'est pas mal du tout. C'est fantastique, man. <laughs> we spoke last time in France about Johnny Holiday, if you remember. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big loss. Um, yeah. For me personally, uh, he, um, he was like a big brother to me and uh, taught me a lot about um, the stage and when I, in the period of time I played with him, which was about five or six years. And uh, I learned a lot from him and um, I've, I've used a lot of that in my, uh, in my career. And um, as I say, a big loss. But, yeah. Uh, And then just the, the yeah, Rainbow Seven. Yeah, he really is. And, and you know, he's the eldest of, of France, very much revered in Quebec as well. Uh, but just mm -hmm. that, that Rainbow yeah. 78, that era. Yeah. Just, just a quick comment, because that really was you and Mick, uh, not you and Mick, but Mick and Lou and the band, just at the top of your game. I mean, that was it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, the band was really starting to cook. And, um You know, uh, when I saw that, I, I didn't believe how actually how good it was because it was just done, uh, you know, as a board mix, I think. And um, it, it, it captured the real essence of what, what we'd done and where we were going. And uh, it was exciting. It's an exciting show to watch. And um, especially the way it was you know, the way it came about. And it was, I believe it was the first show we'd done in England. And um, obviously very important for me. And, uh, you know, so I'm very happy that it seems to be getting a great uh, reception even before it's really on, on release, you know. And, um, and yeah, great memories watching that. Great memories. And uh, thank you so much. We're, we are done. So as we say in Montreal, uh, merci beaucoup. Uh, toujours un plaisir. Always, always a pleasure, sir. Well, C'est gentil. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> Bonne journée. Bonsoir. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bonsoir. Huh? Cheers. Ciao. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to uh, Mick Jones. Always a pleasure to talk to Mick. And of course, uh, as you heard, there are more Double Vision uh, shows coming this summer with Lou Graham and Kelly Hansen. And they will, of course, be fantastic. It was a great, great time when I saw them in December. Sir Allen, uh, by the way, you should get out to a Foreigner Double Vision show if you can. It is, it is truly, truly spectacular. And of course... Jeff Pilson is on uh, part of the band. You know Jeff, right? We've talked about this, I believe, right? You know Jeff. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know Jeff pretty well. I mean, you know, he was in Dorking when uh, we were using the same studio and socializing all the time together. Um, really lovely guy. And uh, my oldest daughter actually went to see Foreigner not so long ago. Um, kind of amusing when your kid goes to see one of one of the, your dad's bands. And uh, had a fantastic time, thoroughly enjoyed the show and thoroughly enjoyed, you know, spending a little time with Jeff. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Now, uh, another person from that era is my next guest, Mike Tramp, of course, formerly of White Lion. And he tells us in the interview exactly why 
There Will Never Be Another White Lion, and he has a new album called Stray From The Flock, which is somewhat thematic of why there won't, won't be another white line. He has strayed from the flock in the sense that he has moved away from being a gun for hire. He's not going to go sing for 87 different bands. He's not going to have 38 versions of white line. He has gone off to become just Mike Lyon, uh, Mike Lyon, Mike Tramp, uh, with a guitar, his voice, and that's it. Um, back in those days, when Great White was playing arenas and, and doing these runs, were were you ever on a bill with, with White Line? Was that ever part of your, you know, at, atmosphere, for the lack of a better word? Um, having already done a, a, well, a couple of what we might call Great White Snake Tours, um, I wasn't particularly in a hurry to do a Great White Lion Tour, um, and I was starting to think, my God, you know, can we retire that particular color for a band name? Um, but, you know, my understanding about Mike is uh, he's Danish and comes from Copenhagen. And I got to say, I fully understand him going back to Copenhagen and living there because that's one of my favorite cities in the world. And whenever somebody's going to Europe and they, you know, maybe for the first time and they ask my advice, Copenhagen is always one of the places I recommend that you go and spend some time in. It's got a really cool vibe, really cool people, a great pedestrian center. It's a lovely place to be. You can ride bicycles everywhere. Izzy and I mixed uh, his first solo album there and just had a blast. It was really relaxed. And it's a lovely place to, to go visit. Um, so, you know, go to Copenhagen. Look up Mike Tramp. Yeah, it really is. And uh, I think I might have mentioned this before, but my mom is Danish. And of course, I spent a lot of summers in Denmark. We would go after school uh, finished in, in June here and we'd go spend all of July and August either in France or in, in Denmark. And about three or four years ago, Mike Tramp came to Ottawa and played a gig. And... Um, I was talking to him and then my mom phoned and blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, there's this guy here who, who from Denmark and I'm, that's, that, that's the show I'm at. And uh, Mike looked at me and goes, he goes, your mom speaks Danish? I go, well, yeah, of course she speaks Danish. She's, she's from Denmark. And he took my phone and he got on the phone with her for probably 20, 25 minutes. And the two of them just spoke Danish to each other. And I think that was actually sort of um, very – it, it was it was a nice moment. I think that you know when you're on the road for a while, you get a little sort of stir crazy, or you get a little you know you feel out of place. And I think uh, having that moment to speak Danish with my mom sort of put him back into like, oh yeah, okay, I'm home, we're good to go, let's get back. So that was that was a fun moment. Um, other than that, uh, Copenhagen is great. Now, when you were there, did you ever run into the famed Metallica producer Fleming Rasmussen? No, I'm afraid I didn't. Um, not not while I was in Copenhagen. Um, is it you know if we weren't in the studio, then uh, Izzy and I were actually on bicycles. Um, and I'm trying to remember the name of it, but there was a hippie community that we went and visited too, which had the most extraordinary buildings in it. Somebody, for example, had taken a a fishing trawler, chopped it in half, put the two halves flat up and upright together and built it into a house. Um, damned if I can remember the name of it, but it, would, it was a really interesting community in those days. 
Yeah, really well. Uh, well, uh, isn't there a um, a community over there called Christiane or Christy? That's exactly right. Yeah, so yeah, I... you're, you're you're putting your finger on it, and um, you know, Izzy and I rode bicycles around there, and uh, it was really cool. It was relaxed. People were conversational. They weren't tugging on him, and it was just a really cool place to be. And uh, you know, if anybody's ever going over there, put Copenhagen on your itinerary. Absolutely, and then uh, take the flyboat over to Malmo, Sweden. It, it's 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 a great little part of the world. Those two places. Now, last week uh, when we had Steve Brown on the phone, and we of course love Steve Brown. He's he's wonderful. Uh, you mentioned that backstage at Donington Slash and David Lee Roth cross paths, and now I, you're going to reveal everything that was said. Correct? No, I'm not actually. Damn it. Um, and it wasn't backstage. It was actually in the hotel bar um, after the show. And uh, we'll just leave it where it was for the moment. But I will say it was a very unfortunate comment that was made. And I think I said it all when it left me looking at uh, DLR and thinking, you're either the dumbest intelligent person I know or the most intelligent dumbass I know. So what you're saying is that you're going to reveal it on next week's episode. That is very wise. A little teaser, get folks coming back. That is very, very wise. Uh, I'm all for that, quite frankly. Um, but jokes aside, let's get over to one of my favorite people uh, on Earth, Mike Tramp. Always so nice and always so kind, at least to me. Uh, and new album is Stray from the Flock. It is out uh, on March 1st. Everywhere that good music is sold, which pretty much means Amazon. Um, <laughs> there's, there's really not a lot of places where good music is sold anymore, right? I mean, you know. Oh, you'd be surprised. Um, I was visiting a friend of mine out in uh, Virginia, uh, Charlottesville, and I was quite taken with the fact that there were four, count them, four different vinyl record stores in that town, which really surprised me. Um, and they were selling really good records, too, let me tell you. In fact, I'm going to ask you this, because this is straight out of the headlines. HMV in the UK went into receivership, and a Canadian company called Sunrise Records just agreed to buy them. Um, is there, I mean, is that a wise investment from a Canadian company or any company to go and save HMV? Or have we really gotten to the point of no return where it's just like, you know what? We're done. I mean, human costs aside of all the people losing their jobs and stuff, which, of course, we don't want. But is it a wise investment? Can, can we still keep music buying and, and, and knickknacks of, of concert T-shirts and appetite for destruction, bandanas and all? Is that still viable or should Sunrise Record have gone, all right, hands off, HMV is a dinosaur? Well, the first observation I'd make is that when you're dealing with some money like that, you have uh, people involved who have a fiscal expertise, and I'm sure that they've diligently looked at it and thought, we can make this work. And my understanding of the deal is that they're going to sell off. Um, there are X number of stores, HMV stores still in the UK. They're going to sell a bunch of them off and keep a bunch of them, and they're keeping the majority. And I think it may, may just be a case that uh, a different management with a different approach to the content of the store um, may, 
may make it work. Yeah. But, you know, if, and, and let me go microcosm to macrocosm. If there can be four vinyl stores in Charlottesville, then maybe there is a place for the right number of HMV stores with the right things in it that people really want to go and get. Because, believe you me, you know, music, music has not been completely buried yet. There were approximately 100,000 people at NAM last week. You know, that's a lot of people looking at guitars and electronic equipment. It really is. And I have to say, Sunrise Record took, took over uh, the HMVs and, and, and failing Sam the Record Mans and other stuff like that in Canada. And if you go to a Sunrise Record store, it is a different experience. They, they have somehow managed to take the spirit of a mom and pop store and stick it into a more into a larger corporate entity. And I, I don't know how else to describe it, but when you go in, you don't feel like a number. You don't feel like you're lost. And you, you feel like you're going to go see Uncle Ted selling you your best album or your best tiche. They, they really know what they're doing, and, I, and you got to give credit to them. So I'm actually very excited for the folks in the UK because you don't know what's about to come. And I'm telling you, it is not the same old, same old. Sunrise does it different, and I, and you, it's you, you can't you, you can't describe it. You just have to go experience it. Yeah, and you know, when I was a nipper, um, I would go to a hardware store where they had four or five bins of records in the back of a hardware store. And, you know, that's where I bought my copy of Led Zeppelin 2 and, you know, the latest Neil Young record um, and King Crimson was in the back of a hardware store. Um, it wasn't the whole American concept of huge stores devoted just to records um, was not something that was a part of uh, the English fabric for a long time. I mean, Virgin was one of the first stores to go the American route. Um, there's always going to be a place for music and there's always going to be an interest at some level. It's just finding where that level sits with uh, a healthy outlook. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we have strayed from the flock here. I was about to introduce Mike Tramp and then we got on to other stuff. So let me, uh, let me bring this back to the flock and let us introduce, again, a singer from White Lion or formerly of White Lion, the one, the only, the great Mike Tramp. We are speaking with former White Lion frontman Mike Tramp. The new album is Stray from the Flock. You can, of course, get it at the shows online and wherever good music is sold. A good day, Mike. Absolute pleasure to talk to you. Always, always. A, always a pleasure here. Always a pleasure here. Yeah, absolutely. So let's. Let's talk Stray from the Flock because there are some songs on there like Die with Your uh, Die with a Smile on Your Face and No End to War that's that are more sort of to me more introspective, more singer-songwriters and then you get one like uh, One Last Mission which is more of a rock song. So talk to me about sort of composing these things and getting them together. Are these brand new songs that you wrote in the last year or two or are these song ideas that you've had floating around for many years that you sort of said okay now it's time to develop them talk to me about this album and its genesis all my solo albums which now this one is number 11 has been specifically written 
for each album. Um, when I started uh, writing and recording my first uh, solo album in 1996, um, I, I, you know, I decided, you know, first of all, that that it really needed to represent me as a solo artist and and who I was when I was just sitting there with a guitar. And um, that from that day on, that's that's a path I would be on. I wasn't interested in, 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 you know, in trying something that wasn't me. I'd already been in two great bands and stuff like that. So. So, yes, each each album, the songs have been written specifically for that. And after I'm done with an album, I purposely take a long break and let that album sort of live and, and have its run before I even consider writing for the next album. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, you know, Vito Brada and myself in White Lion wrote specifically for each album. And we very much wrote till we felt that we had the album. We, we didn't just write and write and write and then sit there and, and, and pick and choose. We wrote specifically for the album. And since then, I've gone with that kind of kind of way of doing it, that I, I, I write the album almost um, like an author would write a book, a chapter at a time. And the story moves on. Back in 2012, you had given an interview and one of the quotes that came from it says, there will never be another classic rock album. So musically, how do you look at, at, at your new music? Are they influenced from the past and have sort of a classic rock flair to them? Are you are you trying to break new ground? What do you where, where are you going musically with with new albums? Where am I going to go with, after that quote? I was just going to say something the total opposite. No, I mean you know sure. What I mean is that everything has been done. Um, Led Zeppelin four, you know the River Captain Fantastic Hotel California Van Halen one, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, you know. Um, the rest of us are kind of like torchbearers uh, of our heroes. And, and, you know, we can continue with a bit of those ingredients in us. And, and, you know, like I spoke before about how, how to put, put an album together, you know, the, most of the classic albums are 10 songs. And I think, you know, at some time or another, you know, we, we almost got used to when it got to that 10th track, uh, you felt like, like you had your dose, um, once CDs came around and you were you were suddenly allowed to put over 60 minutes of, of music on a CD, some bands when it w- went, went just too far and put 16 songs on. And, and by the time you get to the 11th song, you're already tired, especially if, it, if it's a, a traditional metal band that sounds the same on every song. Now, I, without a doubt, come from the old school and I, I grew up I grew up on, on, on the big songwriters all the way from Dylan to Elton John to to the Eagles to Springsteen. And, and of course, you know, the big American rock bands like like Journey and late on Van Halen and, and things like that. So so I go specifically for that an album should contain a lot of different stuff. It's not a live show. Um, and and I write very much in a traditional classic rock album uh, kind of recipe without without me sitting there and trying to to copy every little change that some of the greater bands had done. But in that form of matter, and, and, and I was referring to that before, Vito and I in White Lion wrote sort of, you know, song after song, building the album, not wanting to repeat ourselves. Um, with well, we already have one song in that groove or in that key for that matter, you know. 
do you consider yourself a classic rock artist? Because I, I look at what you do, uh, and we mentioned the the number of solo albums. To me, you you don't tread on the past. I, I know when you go and do a live show, and you'll be doing shows in in the states coming up, and you've got John Karabi on the bill. Of course, you've got to play the hits because that's why fans show up. But musically, you keep going forward. You keep creating new stuff. Do, do you see yourself as a classic rock artist, or do you see yourself as a guy that is an artist and just moving forward? Well, the the thing is, man. I I mean, you know. I've been gone for I've been going at this for 42 years. Um, a lot of people don't know my early career, or whatever. But I mean, I'm 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 now up on 27 albums. Um, today, when we refer to a classic rock artist, we talk about Led Zeppelin. We talk we we talk about the band surrounding that. Um, I have been around since 1976 when at age 15 and a half i i went into the studio with my first band 10 years older than me and recorded the first i mean i was far from ready and it took many many albums before i started actually feeling like i was doing something but i am completely a continuation of 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 where i started and no, I'm not somebody living on the past. Like you said, you know, so I don't really have to say it, but I say it again. Yes, some of the classic White Lion songs are in my live set, especially when I tour the United States or Canada for that matter. Um, but every album is is current and up-to-dated, and each of my soul album represents Mike Tramp at that moment in his life, let's say it's 2003, that album will represent everything that's going on with me at that time or what I've been through. And so on, each album will will, will bring that message along. You know, uh, you you could ask me the question, but I'm going to just say it anyway. I mean, Stray from the Flock is, is exactly what that you know, mean in my own little tongue and cheek. I mean, it's basically like in 1996, I left Sunset Boulevard. I don't have anything to do with any of the 80s bands except for that I was once part of that. But there's none, nothing in my music that represents the attitude, the view on life or anything like that, like it was in the 80s. This is not negative or anything like that. It's just that Mike Tramp went back home to where he came from in his soul, where he, how he had grown up in the late 60s, early 70s as a folk, you know, singer, you know, songwriter, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, inspired by, you know, the hippies in Copenhagen at that time. That's my that's my foundation. I wasn't raised on Aerosmith. Uh, I wasn't raised on, on, on those bands. They came later on. Yeah, they really did. Oh, so there, there's two things I want to I want to talk about there because uh, you did sort of um, well, I don't want to. Can we say you sort of walked away fr from the scene, you, you know, being the lead singer of of White Lion and then, of course, Freak of Nature. At some point, there must have been bands that knew, that were changing vocalists that must have called you and said, hey, would you like to come? And, and well, first of all, did they? And, and why did you sort of resist? Why not fly back to Sunset Boulevard and be the replacement singer of band X, Y and Z? I, I basically had to follow what felt natural. I mean, there is a reason why White Lion breaks up in 91. It, it's I'm calling quits. 
And, you know, there, there's a few small things about it, but at the same time, I didn't start a new white line the day after. I started a completely different band, an underground band called Freak of Nature. It had a completely different sound. And with that, I, cl- I closed the door to white line. I said, OK, I've been in this band and it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like I belong there anymore. I, you know, I don't feel comfortable um, playing the role that I'm almost playing. And, and, you know, I don't know how I can defend it except for just saying that, that, you know, home in many ways, not necessarily physically home, but, but, but my, my roots, uh, even as just as a teenager, let's just say it necessarily wasn't musical roots, but were pulling in me saying, you, you're not, you, this is not who you are. Um, I mean, I felt that, that I was a great front man and I felt that the videos in, in wide line and the live performance and the songs and the singing are me at that moment. But it, it's almost like I started something that I almost could not complete all the way. Um, that now when I when I go, for example, on, on these Monsters of Rock crews and I surround myself with every other leftover band from the 80s um, that that, you, you know, try to hang on to the last strain of hair or or what, however it can go. It's not who I am. And I also followed my voice where my voice wanted to go. I want to stand on stage at age 58 in in 2019 and sing When the Children Cry like a 58-year-old man that takes vitamin pills. (laughs) That's fair. Okay, so – and the other thing you mentioned is when you started. So I wasn't going to go there, but let's go there. Uh, 15 years old, uh, 1976, you joined Mabel, this band in, in, in Denmark. You uh, win the Danish song contest with Boom Boom. You represent Denmark at the Eurovision, uh, not a festival, but competition. Talk to me about that moment in your life and being 15. What were the parents saying? Did they encourage you? Did they think this is kind of cute and, and he'll go back to school next year? What was sort of that vibe where suddenly you're in high school and now you're on TV and you're representing your country and... Uh, what, what was that moment like for you? Did, did, was that an epiphany where you went, yeah, this is my future? Or was that more like, oh, this is kind of cool. You know, it'll help me with girlfriends. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to it. First of all, I came from, from, from a, you know, a divorced family, you know, being raised by my mom and my two brothers. Uh, when I joined this band, I had no plans of ever going into music. It happened almost overnight. It's too long of, of a story to tell exactly why it happened. But once I got in there, I think basically my mom thought there would be one less mouth to feed and, you know, just let these guys, you know, take them on. And maybe she sat at home for once in a while and word how it wrote. But I mean, I, you know, I didn't join Guns N' Roses, man. I joined a band of, of people, pretty, uh, pretty uh, nice guys, you know, in the way that took care of me. But, you know, it's interesting that when you get into a question and a conversation about this issue and then you compare it to today, you know, you know, 1976 in Copenhagen, Denmark, a country with one national uh, TV channel, only national radio, et cetera, et cetera. No, of course, nowhere in the world, Internet, no, no smartphone, none of that. No, no YouTube, no Facebook, none of that stuff. It's hardcore, just world, man, working class family coming from a very rough neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. You, you know, there's just so many things that that no, not nobody was prepared for this. 
um, it's it was it would have been the total different thing that some of my friends I later on met in America I formed a band with the neighborhoods they had come from the world they had come from they had so much more of 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 that world around them even though even though you know we all at some time or another come from from an average home but one thing I know for sure is that once I got into it I took it deadly serious from day one and and to me there would never be a a, a quitting or a return to 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 sort of a normal life or in that matter and 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 later on when when I went to America in in, in 1982 and, and 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 lived there for the next 21 years there were never an option of quitting there were never an option of not making it to the top or just making it, it at all and it always just became my philosophy um I think now that I look back I thought I knew more than I than I did back then, and and now now sitting here being a very very wise man, known everything because of course twenty twenty of hindsight and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's been it's been a, it's it's been an incredible journey. I've met a lot of people. I've met you know some of them are still my friends, and many are not, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and and here I still am, and and I have I have. I have reinvented myself or I have followed um, where I should go. I don't write a song I can't sing. I don't write a song that is not about me or how I see life. I don't have to wake up in the morning and and decide how I'm going to style my hair or something like that. I am one person, 24 hours. Sorry, we lost the audio. It's just the way it is. I mean, I'm just I'm just uh, I'm me all the time. Uh, I don't have to think about it anymore. And it, it's it's where my strength is. And I accept I accept everything that come my way and 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 that that the times in, in rock and roll and the music business are the way they are. You know, I am a traveling or uh, uh, musician, singer, songwriter with a suitcase full of CDs and T-shirts that I that I meet and greet the fans with after the show. It's just the way it is. It's not necessarily the way I wanted it, but it's the way it is, and that's the way I'm going to do it. So, okay, so, boy, there's a lot of issues coming up here. So let me let me ask you about this, because you said you write songs that that, that your voice can, can sing. Are, do you have concerns about the voice? Are, I mean, as we all get older, everything, you know, my back hurts, my neck hurts. It, it's just part of getting older, uh, not complaining. But do you find that your voice has changed? Do, do you have to sort of reimagine your songs and reimagine the words you use do you have to sort of consider the physicality of, well, I, of what you're I doing think, i i think probably i followed more more my 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 life as, as as an athlete that you know like you say when the knees knees start hurting man you know you change you change you know a different to a different sport and etc cetera, etc cetera. and i just already you know on the fourth wide line album i already had had felt the changes in my voice from the first album and and I I knew already there I couldn't sing as high as I did on the first album and and a lot of that on those first two albums had almost ha- happened by accident because by the time Vito and I wrote the songs and we took them down to the rehearsal studio, sometimes I couldn't hear myself and and you know I started singing higher or or changing the key of the song and and you know and it's also why I'm I'm very honest to go out and say I cannot be my tramp 
1987, 26 years old. It's not possible. So why should I try to do that? I mean, for the last half year, all I hear when I all I hear and read when I turn on YouTube just to, for the hell of it. I don't necessarily look for something. I get plastered with 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 one video after another one saying Paul Stanley's lip sync. Paul Stanley does this, and I'm just wondering for what purpose. What is the point? Yeah, you know, and I agree. I'm going to say I agree with you on that because you look at our heroes that we have out there and in North America, at least here for me, we either have sports heroes or rock heroes. And our sports heroes usually have seven years or 10 years of a career. And we think, oh, my God, that was the greatest pitcher, soccer player, hockey goalie, whatever. And you look at guys like you and Paul Stanley and Robert Plant, and who's given us 40, 50, sometimes 60 years of their lives. And instead of saying thank you, we go, oh, he can't sing anymore. Oh, he can't play the guitar. And it's like, why? Why can't you celebrate the fact that that guy or guys gave you 50 years of their life that has been the soundtrack to your wedding, to your high school, to your first job, to the... And I, I don't understand why people are so inherently ungrateful and mean to our rock and roll heroes. And you're right. You know, Paul Stanley, whether you wanted whatever, he gave us 50 years of his life and he should be thanked at every single occasion. End of story. Yeah, I, I agree with you there, but there is also another point like you you mentioned Paul. I mentioned Paul Stanley, and then you you threw him in, and then you threw Robert Plant and myself into. I mean, you know, I'm in good company there, but Robert Plant and myself changed to fit where we are in life. And I think the reason why we maybe at time, including myself, want to bash, especially Kiss, is because. It is it is a it's a game of money and 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 one does not almost want to admit that they can't do it anymore and you can't do that in sport you get you get removed from the team but you don't get removed when you're the band leader and you just say I got another run in me and I'm just wondering I don't even I don't even own a home and I don't even want to go out and try to uh, to do white line. Let's say I could get twice as much money in the clubs trying to put as a third rank, you know, a copy of a white line band, which I actually tried to do. And, and I've said many times regret it because I was the first one who noticed that it didn't feel right. And I, co I couldn't, you know, I couldn't really represent the same person I was in in 1987 and then you got a band like journey who goes the other way and just replaces the old wife with a 27 year old rum from philippines and and most people sitting up in the bleed just don't even know it's not stephen perry you know or steve perry and and that's just where rock and roll is at times the big swindle because it is a game of money. The bands that make the most money are the ones that charges the most for the tickets. Yeah, they do. All right. So let, let me let me just get, go back here in, into the positive. And, and I wasn't going to talk about this, but since we mentioned Kiss, you did, of course, open for them in November of 1987, November, December of 1987 on that Crazy Nights tour. What was that like for a young Mike Tramp to be on the big stage, 
to be in you know Lubbock, Texas and and Rochester, Minnesota and opening for such a revered band, a band with this great history. Just quickly talk to me about getting that that gig and stepping out in Jackson, Mississippi that first night opening for Kiss. November 13th. I yeah. had it engraved on the back of one of my watches, which my first wife gave me. I mean, it was great. And that this is probably why there are some hidden tears in me is, is that, you know, some of them are my heroes. I mean, it's only 11 years after I saw the band playing on the Destroyer tour for, for, for 500 people in a theater in Denmark, you know, and then 11 years later, um, I'm, I'm supporting them and, and, and Gene is coming into our dressing room and talking to us. And, 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 you know, I, I talked to Paul and et cetera, et cetera, and it's great. And we are there. And, 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 and not long after, man, we're on tour with Aerosmith and ACDC or Ozzy or, or even early on, we'd been on tour with Ace Freely and stuff like that. Of course, they're your heroes in many ways. It's all, and you don't want your heroes to die. No, you don't. You don't want them to die, and you don't want to see them weak. And it, it's just a matter. I mean, it, you know, it, 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 it's like you know, you know. Sometimes you look at that, and, and your parents and stuff like that, man. You know, you want to keep the memories of the good old days, man. You know, it 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 is tough because we got this internet thing that is that is messing with me man you know uh i also now have have a uh, a a rock and roll radio show in denmark here every sunday you know in a play in a country that really doesn't play a lot of rock and roll but i have like two hours there and and it's all just about classic rock and this weekend i'm actually doing you know like a two-hour van Hish, van halen special you know the roth years and, and it's only two days ago you know i you know i I saw a clip of David Rotham and, you know, and it's like, you know, um, I just maybe I had wished I hadn't seen this clip. There's not there's no no connection to the program that I'm going to do. And that's, of course, just because now we have the uh, now we can access the world by the by, you know, like a push of a button and we can get so much information that that maybe we can't even digest and it messes with our head and stuff like that. I'm, and I'm really, really trying to restrict it because a lot of the bands that I loved, a lot of the things, some of those YouTube arguments and slandering of Michael Anthony and Van Halen and stuff like had just destroyed destroyed my passion for these bands. You know, the things Gene says about Paul and things Paul says about Gene and not the things that talk about Ace Freely. It's just too much. It, it, it really it, it really has gotten uh, out of hand. Um, just quickly here, you were mentioning before uh, moving to to the States in 1982, and I wanted to follow up, but then we got into the KISS stuff. What was that moment like, that decision? Was it something that you just sort of went, okay, I'm going, here we go? Or did you sort of struggle with that decision for months and, and months and saying, what if, what if, what happens? Um, how difficult was it to sort of pack up? And I guess at that point you were in Spain. H how difficult was it as a young kid to say, I'm going across the pond. I'm going to go to New York. Um, easy or tough decision. And, and just talk to me about that. The hardest part was waiting because we bought the flight tickets half a year before. I mean, the hardest time was waiting that happy so we could get going. 
like like you you mentioned earlier uh, you mentioned earlier that I'd started in 76 and got involved with this band and eventually we we you know we left Denmark because we couldn't stand being there and the way they looked at it and stuff like and then the way we wanted to be you know sort of first you know a little bit of a, like an English style glam band like Swede and Slade and Queen and stuff like that and then later on as we as we moved to Spain I became older I started being the songwriter I started telling the guys I want more distortion on the guitar and then then bands like Van Halen and ACDC had started you know really really influencing me you know in just in, probably more in energy than in, in in songwriting and once I decided that America was going to be the next step of course also with the help that I'd met someone in in in, in a club in, in in Madrid Spain one night that said I would that he would be our manager in New York and we could live in his house I mean it's basically the only thing we needed to know and and, and you know we sold everything we own and and got some money together and just counted the days till 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 we could till we could leave and 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 we came over to New York and 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 it, you know of course it was it was just the the year after MTV had started David Letterman had just started I mean it was it was just the start of a decade of incredible energy in the rock and roll music business and 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 everybody just had a smile every club was full of of rock and roll fans that supported every band that went on stage things things was was sort of easy in a way that there were a lot of positive feedback from from everywhere because it was a golden time of rock and roll everywhere you looked so so basically by the time i came there man i remember coming down the stairs of, of the the airplane in 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 kennedy airport it was before all this the world we live in today existed, you know, and I kissed the ground man, in, in Kennedy Airport. I just, man, I am home. I am home. And, you know, we just slept on the floor and and later on. And, you know, this is, of course, in November of 1982, when when we play in a club in Brooklyn, New York, called Lemoore's that that I meet Vito in, in 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 the dressing room his band was playing the same night and and this is where you know after that show we both have played that night that people people start talking about that singer and that guitar player should form a band yeah and you know it was a, it was a magical combination and I know fans keep asking you oh, will it be a right line reunion oh will it be and and we know the answer but but for what it was, that moment in time, it really was absolutely magical. And I, I will remind listeners, Stray from the Flock is the new album, but I'm going to finish on this. It has now been 32 years, or in June, it'll be 32 years that Pride came out. Um, one of the greatest albums for me of the 80s. I mean, just you just look at the song list. Lady of the Valley, Wait, Sweet Little Lovin'. You know... The songs one one after the other better. It just gets better. Looking back on that now, how do you sort of look at it in your in, in your history? Is it something that you're super proud of? Do you look at it with one of those artistic ears and goes, "Oh my God, we should have done this better. We should have done that better." Just, just how do you reflect upon Pride 32 years later? We we couldn't have done anything better, and especially after because we did. What we knew at that moment, I mean, I mean, the great thing about the Pride album is the classic story of almost every band, except for this is our second album, is that these songs were the live set for a long, long time. So we had we had that time to really make them the pure and 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 100 percent white line. 
and everything that followed after that was all based upon the success and 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 the way we got blinded by the business and you know we cannot forget that we were 26 year old rock and rollers that gave everything for rock and roll we did not sit and read books on accounting we didn't check our managers we didn't check the accounting we didn't do any we just wanted to play rock and roll and and once the money came in we just wanted to spend the money because we had been broke most of our life and it was just a natural reaction. There is zero regrets. I don't want to go back and change something because nobody can go back and change anything. There are silly photos. There are great photos. There are great songs. There are some songs that maybe aren't that great, but the, but we got to taste and we got to, we got to live that life, et cetera, et cetera. These days, you know, Vito and I talk once in a while and, 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 and we have great conversations and we both had gotten to a place that it's important for us to reminisce and, and, and go back and talk about these days. And maybe we bitch a little here and there, but we know one thing for sure. And we 100% in agreement that none of us will do anything in the name of White Lion. That we are 100% for sure of. And it gives an incredible amount of peace and comfort. I already said, I cannot go out and be my tramp 1987. Listen, I still believe I could go out and do a good job. It's let's not say that, but I still don't want to go out and 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 try to be something I don't feel in my heart. Vito also feels the same way. Yeah, Vito. Uh, yeah. Well, let me. So I, I do. I do want to pick up on one thing here just before I wrap up. But you mentioned that it was the live set. These songs were the live set. That is something that's that's that was unique to that time because we can't do that much anymore. You can't really go out and try out ten songs live because they'll be on YouTube the next day, and then you know fans will start. Um, did, did you miss that opportunity to really sort of go and 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 fine tune and, and and get these songs sort of studio ready on a stage before you record them? And and have we sort of lost a little bit of that innocence with YouTube and this need to throw everything up all the time? I mean, to 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 answer your last sort of thing is, I guess, 100 percent, we've lost everything. And number one, uh, the chase was better than the catch in every which way with wide line. When we were when we were the band traveling one little car behind the big tour buses of Triumph, when we toured with them in 1986, our first taste of big a big concert uh, shows, uh, sleeping, you know, in one little motel room, four guys for maybe three hours before we would have to run the soundcheck. We we were one. We were one all the way. There was laughs. There was there was nothing in that, you know. And and I'm as much to blame as the rest. But once our little success started happening, and you know, the individual dressing rooms, and and we needed a break from each other, and all those kind of things. It, it it eventually led to what most bands end up as, and that's breaking up because it's just the way it is. It really is, and and uh, Mike, always a great pleasure. Of course, Stray from the Flock, a uh, the new album, and you will have it with you on tour as you go through the states with John Carabia, and of course the rest of the year. And uh, should Vito call you again, please tell him to call me. I'd love to interview him. He would be a a, a great uh, a great interview. Such a great talent, and. Uh, Always a pleasure, and as we say uh, in Danish, uh, Taskadu Hey, right? Something like that. 
<laughs> right? I try. My mom is Danish, so I, I have some some in there. But uh, and merci, and hopefully we'll see you in Canada at some point. Thank you much. All the best to everyone out there. Tak. Bye-bye. Tak, tak. <laughs> now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. And a very big thank you to uh, Mike Tramp. Always a pleasure to talk to Mike. And now we will head over to... Well, one of the greatest songwriters that I know, the one, the only, Jim Valance. He and, and Brian Adams have written some of the greatest songs over the years, and they have a new Broadway musical, a Pretty Woman, of course, based on the Julia Roberts film back in the day, and they had to rewrite everything, so we talk about that, but we talk about songwriting. Uh, Mr. Niven, uh, I probably should have had you and Jim on the phone together because you are a songwriter, and I think it might have been interesting to compare notes, but how aware are you or were you of the Jim Valance, Brian Adams writing team, and then, of course, Jim doing his own stuff with Alice Cooper and Joe Cocker and Chilliwack, and I know people are going, Chilliwack? Great Canadian band. Go check them out. Um, also, uh, Kiss, he's uh, he's done... Um, how familiar are you with Jim Valance? I was extremely aware of Jim Valance, and not just from a uh, a rock and roll fan point of view, but from a very interested personal point of view, because uh, everybody mentions songs like you know Summer of '69. I like that song because I believed it. I believed the story. It sounded sincere and genuine to me and I thought it was really interesting that it was coming from the hand and the pen of one individual to the voice of the other and that was really encouraging to me because at that point um, the members of Great White were asking me to write more and more for them and I had an insecurity about whether or not you could with validity and skill write for another voice and maintain credibility. And with watching what Jim Valens did for Brian Adams encouraged me and it, and it put me in a position of going, you know what, if you're smart and you're sensitive about this, you can make this work. And, you know, as long as you're really aware of the personality you're writing for, you, you can do it. And uh, that that opened up the door a little bit more for me and gave me a little more confidence in writing for Jack Russell. Um, so yeah, I was very aware of what Jim was doing and I thought he was, uh, I thought he was a cool craftsman. Yeah, he really is. And what I find particularly um, special about Jim is, you know, it's easy to be just a country writer or just a, a rock writer or just a metal writer, but the fact that he can go from, uh, Johnny Holiday, which is, you know, everybody says Francis Elvis, over to the Go-Go's, over to L.A. Guns, uh, Taylor Hicks. Uh, he, he has songs covered by Flo Rider, uh, you know, rap, uh, Brian Adams, Aerosmith, Ozzy, uh, the, Paul Anka. The fact that he can get these songs done by all these different musicians and musical styles, and, and then he can go write this Broadway musical I mean that—that's a whole other level of of well genius. I mean, is there another word for it? I mean, it, right? It's it's genius. Well, yes and no. Um, I've always thought that 
genius is an overused and overrated uh, description of people. Um, I was mildly amused to discover when I was a, when I was a nipper that uh, Einstein's definition of genius was somebody who managed to actually spend 15 minutes out of the 24-hour day cycle to spend 15 minutes thinking clearly and positively. Um, and I get the sense that Jim is capable of doing that, and he did that with his song. So, yeah, call him a genius. Yes, we will do that, and uh, we will, of course, remind folks that he wrote two Kiss songs, uh, Rock and Roll Hell and War Machine, but... I know you love this part of the show, but he also wrote two songs with Black and Blue, Miss Mystery and Without Love, which, of course, included Tommy Thayer, who is currently in Kiss. Bonus points for the Double Kiss connection. See, I'm sure Steve Brown is somewhere listening to this going, good job, Mitch. Way to go on those Kiss connections. Uh, Yeah, I remember remember Black and Blue. That was uh, John (laughs) Wagner and... And Geffen's um, uh, American version of Def Leppard. Um, that was the intent with Black and Blue. Um, I don't know if it, if it got entirely realized, but Tommy's gone on to have a pretty amazing career. Yeah, he really is. Well, listen, he is an incredibly nice guy. During the interview with uh, Jim, we cover a lot of these bands. We cover Aerosmith and Ozzy and Kiss and, and Writing with Brian. Uh, one thing we didn't cover was the time that he wrote with Stephen Piercy for Arcade, but maybe we'll do that at another point. So uh, here we go. Without further ado, an incredibly a great Canadian and an even better songwriter, the one, the only, Jim Valance. We are speaking with songwriter Jim Valance. Jim, an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Lovely to be here. Thank you. There is just so much to the story from your early days playing with prism all the way now to the pretty woman musical and just everything in between. So uh, let me just ask you the first question uh, just real quick. What attracted you to songwriting? Because you were in a band, you were in many bands. In fact, you were a drummer in prism. What sort of turned the point where you said, okay, I'm going to focus all my creative energies on writing and, and crafting. I mean, I, I've been writing since I was 15 or 16, so I had an early interest in in, in the creative process. But um, it wasn't until I got into some bands. There was a few bands before Prism, and then Prism was the first um, recording band that I was in. And I wrote most of the songs on the on the first Prism album and and played drums. But I, I didn't enjoy being in a band. Um, you know, the, the touring, the, you know, hundreds of miles in rental cars with five guys, because it was a pretty low budget beginning for Prism, especially when we did our first U.S. tour uh, with Hart and, uh, and Foreigner. So, I mean, after that, I, I realized that I wasn't really cut out for the road and was more interested in, in staying home and concentrating on on songwriting. I mean, similar story, you know, Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, who spent the first few years touring with the band and then realized his time was better put to use staying home, writing the songs while the band toured. So what to you then, I mean, is there a sort of a a secret to your success? Is there a mechanism that you have in place 
to craft a song or is it about listening to the artist that you're going to write for and, and sort of hearing their vision? How, how do you approach it? Is it song first and then sell them or is it, or is it study the band and then sort of craft something that fits their needs? Well, in my experience, writing a song and then trying to get it to an artist has maybe a 5% success rate. It's very, very difficult. Um, what works is when the label, the manager, or the band uh, approaches you with a specific request for, for songs. And then further to that, um, actually writing a song with the artist, with members of the band, uh, you know, gets you pretty close to being sure you're going to have the song on the record. Because there is no guarantee that a band will write maybe 20 songs to get 12. And, you know, you want to make sure you're in the top 12. Um, you want your songs on the record. You do. Um, before we, I, I start getting into some of the songs that you've written and, and those things, you have, of course, now this Broadway musical, Pretty Woman. Um, is there a, a difference in writing for a Broadway presentation than, for example, a pop record or a rock record? Yeah, it's it's quite different. In I mean, this is my first Broadway show. I, I wrote it with Brian Adams, so we were both kind of um, you know new to this and uh, somewhat out of our depth. It was a steep learning curve. We we just sort of jumped in and figured it out on on, on the go. Um, the difference is every song, every lyric has to serve the story. So um, in this case, it's you know Pretty Woman. The, the movie turned into a musical and the, uh, the same script was pretty much used. And, and the same fellow, uh, J.F. Lawton, who wrote the uh, movie script was involved in, in the musical. So basically the director would say, okay, we have this three minutes of dialogue. And then the next three minutes of dialogue, we're going to replace that with the song. So, um, the dialogue that he's asking you to replace it, it's not really verbatim. You can't just, you know, drop it into a song and, uh, you know, Bob's your uncle. Um, it, it takes a bit of, of work. And further to that, the director, our director, Jerry Mitchell, was very, very particular, as I said, that every lyric served the, uh, the story. And with pop songs, you can get away with quite a bit. You've got a lot of wiggle room. If, if a lyric sounds good, um, you don't even necessarily have to know what it means. I mean, there was an interview with Bob Dylan um, uh, last year where he confessed that some of his lyrics, he doesn't even know what they mean, but they sounded good. So that kind of wiggle room does not exist on Broadway. You have to um, adhere to the story 100%. So that's, that's the challenge. That's the difference. That, that's funny because I've heard people say that uh, they they write songs sometimes phonetically and not necessarily uh, with with sense. Um, but talk to me about this then. Is this something that is you wanted just to try it and it's sort of one and done, or do you see your career moving into more of the Broadway sphere because it really is something unique and special and and, and it certainly takes a, a great amount of talent which you have. Um, is this the first of many, or is this? the first, you know, merci, bonsoir, as we say in Montreal. Yeah. Well, having just completed it in, in recent weeks and months, um, I mean, I'm a little burned up by the process. It was, it was three years of, of full on of writing and rewriting 
um, we wrote 40 songs to get 20 because the director, again, was, was very particular. He'd like a song and it might even stay around for six months of, of rehearsals. And, and then one day he'd say, you know, that, that song isn't quite working. You know, can you write me something else? So, um, as I say, we wrote 40 to get 20. So that, that process was, was, you know, quite exhausting. Um, as a carpenter friend told me once, uh, if you ask him to build something, he can do a really good job the first time. If you ask him to rip it out and build it again, he can do a pretty good job the second time. But if you ask him to do it a third time, his enthusiasm uh, kind of lapses. So I, I, I had a bit of that. It was a few moments where it was difficult. But in the director's defense, whenever he did ask us for a new song, we actually did come up with something better. So, so he was right. He was right. And and in fact, I'll be in New York in May. I'm hoping to, to be able to get a chance to go see it. So talk to me about uh, meeting Brian that first time. You know, he, of course, was in Sweeney Todd. You were in Prism and you're out in, in, in Vancouver or in British Columbia. How did you two guys get together and become a song writing team? How, how did sort of two strangers, for the lack of a better word, meet and go, hey, we've got something here? Uh, totally by chance. So um, Brian had quit Sweeney Todd recently. I had recently quit Prism and um, wasn't really sure what I was going to do next, but I was going to continue writing. And I was actually looking for a band or an artist uh, to attach myself to, similar to my my Prism uh, experience, although I didn't want to be a member of whatever was next, just a a songwriter. So I was um, in Long and McQuaid Music Store on 4th Avenue one day, um, with my friend Ali Monroe and this scrawny kid was in there and Ali knew him and introduced me and it was, it was Brian. Uh, he was 18, um, living with his mom a few blocks away from the music store and he was just there hanging out and Ali introduced us and I knew who we hadn't met previously, but I knew who he was from us when he taught and he knew who I was. And, um, I think it was Brian who said, you know, we should get together and try and write something. And I said, absolutely. And we exchanged phone numbers. And um, in fact, it was um, today's January 7, 2018. It was January 9, uh, sorry, yeah, January 9, uh, 1978 that, yes. that Brian and I met. So, And we're uh, 2019. <laughs> yeah. So 41 <laughs> years ago right. on Wednesday, that's when we, went, when we met. Wow, that's a great celebration. Okay. So... You you have a a young Jim Valance, a young Brian Adams. You start writing together. How did you get noticed by some? Because you know you're you're on uh, a Kiss record in 1982 before Brian Adams was really Brian Adams. You're on the Backman Turner Overdrive album of 1979, Rock and Roll Nights. Um, how did you get your songs to these established, and I'm going to call them brands because they're not just bands, they are brands. How does this rookie team get themselves noticed? It was really tough. Um, you know, people often think that Brian's career was just a, an overnight success, but um, in terms of his own career, you know, first of all, as I say, we met in 78, um, wrote a bunch of songs, and by 79, um, Brian went out to Toronto and did the rounds of all the record companies and was turned down by, by everybody. Um, so he came back and we just started writing some more songs. It wasn't until 1983, so that's five years, 
um, Cuts Like a Knife album was the first successful album uh, for Brian. So, you know, it was five years of, of hard work and, and, and rejection and just, you know, going back to the drawing board and trying again. But in, in the interim, um, Brian's uh, manager, eventual manager, Bruce Allen, also managed BTO and he managed Prism. So Bruce put me in touch with uh, BTO. This is before I met Brian. So that's how the Rock and Roll Nights uh, connection uh, came about. And the Kiss connection in 82, um, the album Creatures of the Night was being produced by Michael James Jackson, who happened to be uh, a Canadian. And I think for that reason, he was aware of Brian and I um, as sort of, you know, bubbling under uh, potential songwriters. So he approached us to to write a couple of things for, for Kiss. And one of the first things I presented uh, was Rock and Roll Hell, which is a song I'd actually written for, for BTO. And uh, Brian uh, contributed an additional uh, bridge section to the song. And uh, I think Gene Simmons put a few thoughts in as well. And then there was another um, completely new song, uh, War Machine, that uh, my, my memory on it is a little bit vague. Uh, Gene claims he sent us uh, a riff. I, I I don't remember that, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen that way. But anyway, end result is um, uh, Gene, Brian, and I um, completed that song. So we had two songs on that album. And the, the first call I got was... Um, the phone rings and um, a woman says, I have Michael Jackson on the line for you. And I was like, what? But as it turns out, it was Michael James Jackson. So a um, little bit of a shock there for a moment. That's amazing. Cause, and I've had a chance to interview Michael before. So how important then, and, and, and by the way, I like, I like the fact that as Canadians, we sort of stick together and get these things done. But how important to your career was Michael James Jackson, Bruce Fairburn, Bruce Allen, do, do they all play a significant role? Or, you know, how, how much help did they give you? Or was it more, no, your songs are just so good, it didn't matter who was around, it was going to get out? Oh, no, you know, this is a, this is a team sport. Um, nobody succeeds on their own in the music business. So it's all, uh, you know, connections, opportunities, uh, you know, a bit of luck here and there. Um, and you know, a lot of hard work. I mean, it really does take a lot to deliver. You can get asked to write a song, uh, and you can even write a song, but you know, it's not always going to be the one that makes it on the record. So that, that's the trick to, to make a living at this. You actually have to get a bunch of songs on a bunch of records. And, and that's the, that's the, uh, the dilemma. That, that's the difficult thing about making a living as a songwriter. So you just have to keep trying to hit them out of the park. So, you know, Bruce Fairburn, um, who was in prison, as you may know, um, when he started to have success as a producer, um, he brought me into the Aerosmith project. So, I mean, that was a big jump up for me as well. And, and thanks to Bruce Fairburn for that. Uh, Bruce Allen was always involved in, in one way or another um, with you know, connections and ideas and inspiration. So he's, uh, I mean, to this day, he's still Brian's manager and still a a major force in, in, in Brian's career. So that's absolutely, we had um, a lot, a lot of good people uh, supporting us and, and helping us. Um, I do want to explore some of the songs and some of the albums, but I just, I want to ask you this first. We are now in what we are 
considering more of the digital age where physical product is, has become less important and streaming seems to be the way to go. How does that affect you as a songwriter in terms of, uh, you know, the financials? Is it a brave new world or songwriter gets paid regardless? Has it changed the way you approach songwriting in any way? Uh, how does sort of the digital age affect you as the songwriter and the business of being a songwriter? Well, I think it affected everybody. It's pretty much um, back to 1999 when Napster came on the scene and suddenly um, music was free. And, you know, before 1999, between 1975 and 1999, my songs were on more than 100 million albums, you know, vinyls, cassettes, CDs. And after 1999, I mean, that all changed. Just people stopped paying for music. And even uh, last week, um, uh, HMV in, in London finally closed. And, you know, there just aren't any CD stores left anymore. It's just not a uh, not a viable business model. Uh, you know, streaming is still okay. And um, I do really well on airplay with, with as many songs as I have out there. There's always something getting played somewhere in the world. So, um, SoCan takes really good care of us in, in terms of uh, collecting and distributing our our uh, music royalties. So, I mean, it's still it's still pretty good, but it's also a volume thing. If you were just starting as a songwriter today and had one song out there, um, you know, it's going to be pretty difficult to to buy groceries and pay the rent. But um, you know, I'm fortunate to have had you know, over 40 years of um, involvement and hundreds of songs still still out there um, getting airplay and, and and getting recorded and so on. So I'm grateful for that. I mean, back to Broadway, that was actually um, Brian's um, observation is that Broadway is a pretty good business model uh, for songwriters. Um, it, it's really quite generous. We, we get a, a percentage of every ticket sold. So you know, there was no you know, big fee up front or anything is basically we were in as, as partners with uh, a producer and director and took a chance on, on this being a success. And, um, you know, so far so good. It's selling out every night. And as I say, the business model is generous. We get a, we get a piece of every ticket. So that might be the new sort of frontier or the, the new preferred business model for songwriters. So, so let me ask you then, then, you have, like you said, 40 years of career and volume of songs and airplay. If I or a, a kid, you know, 15 years old, hears us today, is there a chance for them to have a career? Is it still an attainable goal or is it like, nah, that model is done. You you, you got to find some other. I mean, can you still be a songwriter in 2019 moving forward? I mean, it's tough. I mean, I would never discourage anyone from following the dream and, and giving it a go. Um, I mean, it's, it's a lot more difficult than it was. I mean, back in the 70s and, and even 80s, uh, record companies um, were making money hand over fist, and they had lots of spare money to uh, develop new artists. They could they could throw money at 10 artists, and and if uh, one of them succeeded, um, you know, they they were they were doing good. Um, nowadays, record companies have no budget whatsoever. Um, you pretty much have to self-finance your, your recording and then just hope for distribution uh, from the record company. 
I mean, uh, that being said, in the case of the um, Pretty Woman soundtrack, we, we had um, really good support from Atlantic Records. Um, they gave us um, a, a real generous amount of studio time to uh, to do the cast album, which is quite unprecedented. Cast albums are usually just one or two days and out the door. But um, so you know, there there is still support there, but 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 certainly not like the like the old days. Um, my son is um, he's 29. He's been doing it since he was 18 or 19, and you know, finally having some success. But um, they tour constantly. They, they they make most of their money uh, touring, so they're all over the world: uh, uh, Cairo, Beirut, Moscow, Paris, Singapore. I mean, they really work hard to to uh, to earn a living at it. It's almost like we've gone back to the 1960s where you had to tour <laughs> to make any money. But now, so all right. So let, let, let me talk about the the, the growth and, and how it sort of developed. Uh, Brian does his first album back in. 1980. Uh, by the way, one of my favorite songs ever, Remember, is on that, written, co-written by you. You Want oh, It, You great, Got it. It, it. Great song. You Want It, You Got It. You know, both albums do okay, but they don't they don't set the world on fire. And I don't mean that in, in disparagingly at all. It is, what changed between that, uh, those two albums, and Cuts Like a Knife, where all of a sudden, Cuts Like a Knife, uh, he's out on the road opening for Aerosmith, uh, at least in Montreal he was, uh, radios all over it, straight from the heart. Was it just better songs? Was it just it, it was time? Talk to me about sort of the process of those first three albums, going from okay to okay to ooh, all right, now we've got a bona fide hit. Well, I think the first album was just a, a bit of an amateur um, attempt, and we, we didn't really know what we were doing. Um, I mean, we did the best we could with what we knew at the time, but. Um, the second album, you want it, you got it. Um, Bob Clearmountain came in at the suggestion of uh, A and R man uh, David Churchenbaum, uh, and Bob Clearmountain made all the difference. He made you want it, you got it sound amazing. So, I mean, the songs weren't terrific. I think Brian and I were still developing our our song craft. Um, there's a couple of okay songs on you want it, you got it. I think Lonely Nights is okay and. I like uh, coming home, but it, it wasn't a stellar album song-wise. Then you get to cuts like a knife, and the title song was, I, I think, quite anthemic and and resonated with with radio and and with with fans. So that's the song that really really kicked things off. Um, and again, Bob Clear Mountain was uh, was at the helm and, and made that record sound amazing. Yeah, Bob is great, and of course it was done at the old Le Studio in Morin Heights, which unfortunately has become this dilapidated, broken-down thing. So, I know. Have you seen the videos? Yeah. It's, it, it, yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, it it truly is, and and as a Canadian, I, I would have hoped that maybe something like Heritage Canada would have stepped in and said, "Okay, listen, the owners aren't here anymore, but." The police have been here. Uh, Brian Adams has been here. Queensryche has been here. All these bands have been here. We need to, but anyway, it didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, say la vie. Um, so the, the last week I, I was interviewing Pat Stewart, who of course played on Reckless. Talk, I love Pat. Pat is great, and the Odds are a great band as well. Um, talk to really? me about talk to me about Reckless uh, for a moment here, because I'll give you my personal experience. You know. Uh, 
after sort of Kiss went through Dynasty and Unmasked and The Elder, I sort of sort of gave up on on rock and and I went towards more sort of pop and you know uh, the knack and you know that kind of stuff. And I yeah. hear Reckless, and I hear Summer of 69 and Somebody and Run to You, and much music, God bless them, you know, and the CanCon rules, they, they were playing it all. And that just, it, it got me back to being into rock. And I just went, okay. Um, what was that like going into, into that record? You know, you have these three records that come out, the success is building. Uh, was there any pressure going into into this record that it had to be the next great thing or, or else, you know, you and Brian were done. What was sort of the, the pre going into that? And then as it starts taking off, were you like, Oh, why is this, why is this working? You know, just sort of walk me through a little bit of, of the reckless time. Well, there was no pressure going in. Uh, there was pressure after reckless, but we can, we can get to that later. Um, Brian decided to take a year to just take a whole year to write and record this album. And um, we just decided to write the best songs we could. And, and as I say, we, we were getting better as a songwriter, getting more confident. Um, so we just got together every day. I mean, literally seven days a week. Um, we would start with lunch, have a sandwich, uh, sometimes play a bit of backgammon, and then go down to my studio and... Yeah work until midnight every day. And we didn't necessarily write a song every day, but we wrote something. We, we started a song or, or, you know, uh, came up with a few lyrics or filled in some blanks, but it took a whole year. And, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with that album. If I, when I look at the song list, it's, it's, it's pretty strong. There's maybe a, a couple of weak numbers, but, um, I mean, the proof was was on radio where um, many of the songs uh, became singles. I mean, we had a number one with Heaven, and I don't remember the chart numbers, but you know, Run to You, Somebody, Summer '69. I think we're all in the top ten, if I remember. And then there was It's Only Love, but, um, duet with Nina Turner, uh, Kids Want to Rock, which was um, you know a full-on rock song. So um, yeah, I think we just finally figured out how to how to get it right that was that was where we where our our, our craft the 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 um whatever it was by that that point you know five or six years of of um of working at it uh finally came to fruition we we finally figured out how to do it what's amazing about that album too and maybe some fans don't realize is that some of the songs that were left off uh, we're also chart success. When you look at Teacher Teacher with 38 Special or Let Me Down Easy with Roger Daltrey, they also made the Billboard Top one or Hot 100. Um, talk to me about some of those songs and and that 30th anniversary uh, edition where this deluxe edition, because if I'm not mistaken, you actually play drums on some of those demos, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that's um, I played drums on, on, on all the demos. So the way Brian and I worked... Um, this is going back to, you know, before, uh, digital, before, um, computers almost. I mean, it was very analog. So, um, the way we would work is, uh, there was no drum machines at the time. So, um, for inspiration, if we, once we decided on 
what kind of song we were writing, uh, you know, mid-tempo, up-tempo, or ballad. Um, I would uh, go out in the studio. This is in my, my basement in West Vancouver. I'd go in the studio and play a few bars of drums onto a quarter-inch tape and come back in the control room, um, uh, you know, mark the tape with a, a white crayon, you know, cut it with a razor blade, um, tape it together in a loop, um, and and then just have it go around and around and around. So that was our drum machine. And then once the song was written, then we'd um, we'd do a demo, and uh, I'd go back out again and and play drums. Or we'd usually start with with guitar, uh, either to a click track or to or to the drum loop that I just mentioned. But um, at the end of the day, I'd, I'd go out and play uh, real drums on on the demo. So what you're hearing on that anniversary album, the, the, the demos that were actually never intended for for release, are just you know the rough versions of of songs that um, uh, that Brian and I recorded in my basement studio. It's just basically me and him. Uh, I would play bass and keyboards. Brian would play guitar. I'd play drums. Brian would sing, obviously. Uh, we'd get Keith over to do a solo. And then um, that was the template from which the band, Brian's band, would, would learn would learn the song. So, for example, if you were to hear the the demo for uh, Run To You and then compare it to the master, um, I mean, a number of things. First of all, Bob made the master sound a bunch better. Um, Brian's band you know, played it beautifully, but they were basically playing the parts that Brian and I committed to tape um, in the demo stage in the basement. Well, well, they sounded great. Um, I, I just want to backtrack real quick here on uh, onto Cuts Like a Knife. Um, Lou Graham, a foreigner who just recently reti- uh, announced his retirement from solo touring, uh, ends up on the album singing on three tracks, uh, Straight from the Heart, Cuts Like a Knife, and The Best Was Yet to Come, arguably probably the three bigger tracks. How does Lou Graham, who is at that time in 82, 83, one of the biggest rock stars in the world, end up on an up-and-coming Canadian artist's album? Well, I think by that time, Brian had toured with Foreigner, if, if I recall. So you know, they had... Um, That's true. On the You Wanted, You Got It, he had opened for them. Yeah, right? so they, they had become friends on, on the road. And... Um, so Brian's not shy about about asking, you know, favors, and and Lou was obviously very gracious and, and accepted. So, um, yeah, that's how it came to be. I mean, just a, a lovely guy, and 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 happy to help out. And and his voice really does make a make a difference on those songs. Yeah, it really does. Um, so if you look at some of your uh, discography, or you know, you, you got April Wine, you've got Arcade, you've got Jimmy Barnes, uh, Black and Blue, Laura Branigan, Chilliwack, you know, Neil Diamond, D- all these different bands, different genres, different styles. Uh, and I know we touched a little bit at the front of, on this, but when you're writing for these people. And these different genres. Do you approach the songwriting at all differently, or a song is a song is a song? Well, a bit of both. I mean, um, some songs can can jump genres. Um, I mean, one example is uh, one of Brian's songs, uh, "I'm Ready," 
Um, I forget what album that was on. Was it on um, Cuts Like a Knife, I think? Uh, you yes. know, a straight rock song. And then when he did his M, uh, MTV Unplugged version, he did the song as a ballad. So, I mean, it, it worked in, in, in both forms. Um, but back to just artist by artist. I mean, if you're, you, you know, I think my sort of mantra, <clears throat> excuse me, mantra or, you know, secret to success is um, if you're working with a band, write a song that sounds like, like that band. I mean, maybe not necessarily it sounds like their last album or the album before that, but, you know, maintain all of those those elements and, and nuances and then, you know, bring something a little a little different to the table. But at the end of the day, if if you write a song with Aerosmith and it doesn't sound like Aerosmith, it's just it's just not gonna get on the record. So um I was always very, very conscious of of staying true to, to, to a band style. So I mean that means you know, changing gears. I think I think there was one time I'm trying to remember I, I spent um, a week working with David Foster writing songs for Anne Murray, and then the next week I was in with Alice Cooper. So, you know, I mean, very, very different um, style and genre. But uh, you just, you know, you just change gears and 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 kind of try to get in, into the head of the of the artist you're working with. Just almost try to become a member of the band temporarily and and you know contribute appropriately. That's the secret, really. It really is. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you up here on a couple of the hard rock albums because that's you know that's that's what I do and that's what I you know my fans listen to. But you you've been you've written for Ozzy on his Osmosis album, Alice Cooper, Hey Stupid, like you just mentioned, Scorpions, Crazy World, and of course Aerosmith, uh, Permanent Vacation. Talk to me, but let, let me start off, I guess, with Permanent Vacation because we we've mentioned it a little bit. The band at the time is struggling. They they have just sort of reunited in a sense. The last album or the reunion album done with Mirrors didn't do well in the marketplace. Do they call you in as a sort of a song doctor and say, hey, we've got these songs, fix them up? Or does the record company say, hey, listen, boys, you don't know how to write for, for radio in 1987, so sit with Jim here. Um, what was that that session like? And... Um, you know, how much pressure was exerted on the band? Because th- this was the second sort of reunion album. And if it had stunk, not sure we'd have Aerosmith still around in 2019. Yeah, they had just, um, they'd all come out of rehab. They, they were very recently rehabbed. Um, all of it raw, you know, emotions were, were close to the surface. Uh, but I mean, lovely guys. I mean, they were, uh, Stephen and Joe were just a, uh, a joy to work with, but um, I mean, to their credit, uh, John Claudner, the um, A&R guy at, at Geffen, um, imposed a couple of conditions on signing them to the label. Um, the first condition, which I've already mentioned, was that they all get clean and sober, so they all went to rehab. Um, and he said, "I'm going to want you to work with some outside writers." Now, I don't think it was ever thought that Aerosmith were incapable of, of writing songs, but I just I think Claudner and, and Bruce Fairburn was, was producing. I think they just thought it would it would move things along more quickly, it would it would, you know, light a fire 
under the band or under the, under the writers, especially Stephen and Joe. So um, I think it was myself and Desmond Child. I can't remember what other outside writers were were on that album. But um, I, I mean, I, I felt very, very fortunate to um, to be part of that. And, and again, no guarantees. They were coming off a, a failed album. Um, as you mentioned, the band had, had broken up and, and, and reformed. So I mean everything was was raw. There were there was no guarantees whatsoever. But um, Gladner and Fairburn assembled a, a really really great team. Uh, Bob Rock, recording engineer, um, did an amazing job. And I think the guys the band knew this was their last chance. I mean they had all they had lost their houses, lost their cars. Uh, they were desperate. They needed that album to succeed and everybody worked extremely hard and, um, and, and all for the same purpose. I mean, we, we were all on the same page for that, for that whole project. So um, I, I'm really proud to have been part of that. It's a uh, great memories from that period of time. Yeah. And, and, and I have to say personally, first, first of all, thank you because that album, I had given up on Aerosmith. I, I just, I didn't want to hear anything about Aerosmith. And then that album came out uh, and Holly Knight was also an outside writer on that. And it was like, That's right, yeah. it was like, ah, they're back. And then I went back and listened to sweet emotion and toys in the attic. And it was like, ah, uh, you know, I, I rediscovered the band and it, it's all because of permanent vacation and, you know, magic touch and some, uh, Samar- Samaria, all those songs, they were just, it, it's what the doctor ordered. So perfect stuff. Um, let me move over to, to the Scorpions and Crazy World. Here's another band that I, I, I love everything they've ever done. They come off Savage Amusement in 88, and it's okay. It had a modicum of success, but it wasn't the success of Rock You Like a Hurricane or the early 80s stuff. Was that another one where they said, okay, we need some outside help and we need to get it to that? Because you look at these songs... Um, Tease me, please me. Don't believe her. Uh, kick uh, kicks after six. Uh, were they in trouble as well and and needed outside help, or was it just like, hey, we're just gonna make the best album we can and we'll do whatever we need to do? And here's Jim. Yeah, no, they weren't in trouble at all. They they had a, a you know robust career and fan base, and um, I, I don't quite know how I came to be involved in that. I don't recall, but. Um, yeah, I, I think I was primarily brought in to help with the lyrics, um, because um, not that they had you know major difficulties with English, but they're you know they're a you know German language band um, making records in English. I mean, some of the some of the lyrics you know bordered on you know Spinal Tap parody and not intentionally so. Uh, I, I tried my best to, um, you know, just straighten out the lyrics, but ended up, um, you know, writing some songs uh, from scratch. And, um, you know, I'm not the world's greatest guitarist, but I, you know, I, I can rock out pretty good. So I, I had fun uh, with, uh, you know, me and Rudolph, um, uh, you know, doing the guitars on the demos and and Klaus, uh, Klaus singing. Um, again, real fun time. They're, they're terrific guys, and I had a blast working with them. And if I'm not mistaken, you're you're on the album, right? On, on "Send Me an Angel," we can hear you sort of doing the keyboards, right? You're you're actually 
Audible. Yeah, I didn't uh, uh, co-write that song, but I did arrange it and uh, ended up playing the, the keyboards and you know, the string patches and, and all of that on uh, on the album. I think I played drums on one song, too. I can't remember which one, but... That, yeah, that, so anyway, that, yeah, that's keep... one thing that my research doesn't show, that you played drums on it. Oh, I'm trying... That, huh. hmm. was I, it one, I don't remember. Was it one of the ones you wrote? I don't remember wrote? which song. I, I, I don't remember. Let me see if I can can find out here, but... Um, here, I'm going to go to your... I just uh, don't recall. By the way, I, I'd like to, to uh, move, uh, tell folks to head over to jimvalance.com. You have got and I mean this sincerely, one of the greatest websites ever because you can go over to your discography and you can go to your song-by-song list and you can click on the songs and it comes with a story. Who played on the recording? When was it recording? The lyrics. It is the most fascinating sort of, you know, music geek kind of thing. It, it just is is absolutely terrific. So let's see here. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at the Scorpion songs just real quick to see Herman uh, drums. So- it, it might have been it might have been one of the songs that I didn't write. Um, what was that? Um, uh, 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 one about. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm I'm looking yeah, real I, I, quick I, I, here. All the ones you wrote so remember. far. All the ones you wrote so far says that Herman played on them. And, of course, you worked with Keith yes. Olsen and other – I mean, holy mackerel, you, you have worked with the best of the best on all – I mean, Keith Olsen, uh, Bruce Fairburn. I mean, just an incredible incre- – um, just real quick, Tears Are Not Enough. Uh, of course, the U.K., if you want. Uh, the U.K. bands put out Do They Know It's Christmas. American bands come back and boom, uh, we are the world. And of course, Canada comes out with Tears Are Not Enough. Talk to me about this charity single that was put together. What was that like? Uh, And is that something that the music industry is missing these days where bands and, and bands from countries get together for a good cause? Well, I think the difference maybe, and I'm just speculating here, but I mean... Back then, the idea was to raise as much money as possible for, and as quickly as possible, uh, for African famine relief. And um, you know, millions and millions of albums and singles sold. You know, um, do you know it's Christmas? Uh, we are the world, and 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 our Canadian contribution. So there were significant sales, and significant uh, dollars raised, and. I don't think that would be possible today, back to what we were talking about earlier on, where people don't buy product. So um, I think that might be a disincentive for um, uh, doing those kinds of records again. Which is too bad, because uh, I, I remember the time very specifically, there, were, there was a sort of a, a national pride between countries and almost sort of a, a friendly competition of, oh yeah, you did that. We're going to do this song. And, and, and it, it was, it was fun to see. And of course it was all for a great cause. And it, it just seems as though we've perhaps moved on from those days where we just, I don't know if we can do that again. Um, the order of Canada was awarded to you years ago. Uh, uh, 2008, was it? No, 2007, 2007, uh, 2007, were, I believe 2007, you were appointed. For those that are listening in the States and outside of Canada, it is one, of course, one of our greatest uh, honors to have the Order of Canada. What did that mean to you to have the government sit in or, or recognize you and say, hey, you know what? You're not just 
a songwriter. You're not just a, a, a musician. You are an important cultural icon, a, a, a representative of Canada. Um, just talk to me about that when you first heard the news and now having the honor bestowed upon you. Well, I mean, it was a, a, an honor. I, I was... Um, you know, shocked when I when I was approached, and they actually approach you in advance of you being um, invested and ask you, uh, will you accept the award? Because I, what they don't want, I guess, is anybody to sort of accept the award and then, then uh, or be uh, nominated and then refuse it. I think you know for political purposes or grandstanding or whatever. So, so. Um, I had a little bit of advance notice, and again, very, very surprised, very, very honored, and of course, I, I, I accepted. Um, and and the ceremony in Ottawa was was very moving, but um, I mean, I mean, quite humbling. I was invested with um, about twenty others, and you know, I mean, as much of an honor as it was, um, there were others being honored for. You know, uh, medical um, innovation, you know, saving lives and that sort of thing. So um, it, it puts it in perspective, too. I mean, interesting on, on, on that topic, In when I was living in Vancouver, uh, my neighbor was a was a doctor and he came over one time and he was um, interested in seeing my studio and he was quite impressed saying, you know, you really know what all these knobs and and dials do, and I said, well, yeah, it's it's easy. This is what I do. Um, I said, but he says he said he was very impressed. I said, Larry, listen, uh, this is what I do, but you you save lives. And he said, you have no idea how important music is to people's well-being. He said, music is a it's a powerful healer. So I was quite impressed to hear that. Well, he's right. You know, when when you're when you have a heartbreak or you're or you're having a bad day, at least at least for me, I know sometimes when when I'm having a bad day, you put on a song and it changes everything. I used to be a competitive tennis player and every time before a match I had to listen to Aerosmith's Mama Kin because that was my winning song. So yeah, it does motivate. It does get you feeling feeling better. Um I know we're we're at 45 minutes here, so I'm going to I'm going to start wrapping up, but I'll ask you uh, Two last or three last things. Um, just quickly, a story about working with Alice on the Hey Stupid album, and then over to Ozzy on the Osmosis album. And is it? Do you have a favorite song you've written? I know that's sort of a you know TMZ is kind of question or Teen Beat kind of question, but is there that one song where you go, you know what, folks? If you're going to judge me by what I write. Go listen to that. That's the one that that says, "This is me. This is what I'm capable of doing." I mean, probably summer '69. Um, just because it, it's it seems to have reached a lot of people. It seems to be, at least in Brian's catalog, um, you know, a favorite amongst his fans. It's the song that gets the most applause when Brian plays uh, live, and. I think it was also written at the peak of our of our uh, you know sort of writing evolution. I think it was melodically and lyrically um, you know well crafted and um, and it, you know it still sounds great today. When I when I hear it on the radio, I 
I'm, I always enjoy hearing it again. It brings back good memories, and I, I think we did good work on that one. So, yeah, that would be a favorite, I think. And it's a brilliant. Now, you you're credited on on the song as percussionist, right? So, you, or percussion, you you are again audible on Summer '69. I, I believe so. Yeah, I think I'm on that one. All right. So, and then let's 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 just wrap up with uh, with Hey Stupid. Uh, talk to me about working with with Alice Cooper. What was sort of the walking orders going into that one? His career had taken a, a downturn. He c- comes back with um, Not Poison Trash, the Trash album, and Hey Stupid was the follow up. You've got Dick Wagner working on there. Uh, Nikki Six is working on there. Uh, you've got guest musicians all over the place. And you come in and write a couple of songs. Um, in fact, you worked with uh, Die For You has Nikki Six, Jim Valance, and Mick Mars on there. Um, what was that like? Well, we weren't in the same room. Uh, okay. Um, just Alice and I were, were, were together, and then other contributions uh, took place after the fact. Um, I mean, Alice is maybe the loveliest guy you could ever want to meet. He's a really, really sweet man. Very, very smart. Very, very talented. Um, going in, there wasn't any, uh, specific instruction. It was just, you know, he came to Vancouver and just the idea was to, to write some songs. And, um, the only regret I have with that is Alice was at that time, uh, under the influence of a particular record company person who inserted themselves quite, quite significantly into the creative process. Uh, um, from the writing phase right through to the recording. So the the demos that Alice and I did of the songs that we wrote compared to the album, the completed, finished album, the, the changes that took place were, were very disappointing. So um, I'm a little little unhappy with, with how that turned out. I mean, other than, you know, making a great friend in Alice, I, I just... I wish things had been different in terms of uh, the people who were involved with, with that album. I agree. Well, and, and by the way, I'll, I'll agree with the, uh, the, out of all the rock stars I've met, Alice Cooper and, and maybe perhaps Rob Halford could give him a run for, but those are two of the sweetest people. Have you ever met Rob Halford? I mean, just. Two I have the, not, no. Rob Halford and, and Alice Cooper, just, just absolutely two of the loveliest people you'll ever meet. And then we'll, we'll finish with uh, Osmosis. Uh, you know, you, you you look at it on the surface and you go, oh, the guy who's writing for Brian Adams is writing an Osmosis record or for Ozzy, and you go, huh, but it works and it's great. Um, just talk to me about those sessions. Was that more of a again a? And I use the word song doctor or the word song doctor. Was it just come in and fix up some lyrics, or is it really no? We're going to start from scratch and build these songs together. Yeah, no, I, I really don't like the the term. Song, right, huh? song doctor, and it's, it's often uh, applied to me. I mean, it sort of infers that that I do that. I fix songs that have already been written. Okay. But in, in this case, Ozzy and I started from absolute scratch. He, he came to Vancouver. We, you know, sat down in my studio and you know chatted about a few things, maybe some you know themes to write about. Um, and it started right from scratch. Just just him and me in a room, uh, me playing guitar and, and Ozzy singing, and we wrote. Um, if I remember, we wrote three or four songs. Um, only two of them saw the light of day, but um, he, he's wonderful to work with. Again, just like like Alice, uh, Ozzy's one of the sweetest people you'd ever want to meet, and way smarter than than people think. He's got 
a bit of a buffoon um, exterior, but I mean that's that's pretty misunderstood. He's he's a very very bright guy um, and very very talented. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. It's been an absolute absolute pleasure. And and, and listen, I could go on forever and always about writing for Johnny Holiday and and L.A. Guns and but I've taken 50 minutes of your time and I thank you for that. Absolute, absolute pleasure. Pleasure for me too. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, and uh, Pretty Women, uh, folk, Pretty Woman actually on Broadway now. Um, check that out on jimvalance.com. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Cheers now. Bye-bye. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.